0: Basically, as soon as we're done recording this podcast, I actually break down this recording studio because about half of it has to go with me to the event. So it'll be interesting next Sunday when we reconvene to podcast if I can get all of these things back together in the right order and, uh, and, uh, and if we can Skype properly because that's always a, a bit of an adventure, too, in terms of the, uh, the volume and the stuff.
1: Sure, yeah. It's always good to keep everything plugged in how it was last week when it worked.
0: I've done that before. What I've done also is taken a photo of the board so that I have everything. But then I can't find the photo because I have like 10,000 photos on my phone. Adventures in Podcasting.
1: Nobody leave this place without singing the blues.
0: You've tuned into the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, two guys and occasional guests talking about the news in NCAA Division III football. It's the largest division, the one with the smallest schools. I'm Pat Coleman who runs D3Football.com and my co-host Keith McMillan has been here since about day five. Keith, if you were a tree, what kind of tree would you be?
1: If you can pull a Morris Day clip, I'll be an oak tree.
0: Saturday was one of those days where it's great to be a neutral observer of Division Three, watching games, uh, following us on Twitter, keeping up with all the big finishes. We had one of those afternoons where three tight games involving top 25 teams all came down to the finish within a few minutes of each other. We're talking about the Illinois Wesleyan Carthage game, the one between Harden-Simmons and Texas Lutheran, and the w Westminster game. And, Keith, before we talk about the games individually, this really felt like one of those first-round playoff Saturdays that uh, we talk about and that we love.
1: Sure. With so many matchups and so much on the line, and then the tight finishes, it was really um, it was a lot of fun. If the first phase of the season is welcome back football, and the second is a feeling out period, trying to figure out what kind of team you know your favorite team will have this year, or what kind of who will be competitive in your conference, these last few weeks before the playoffs and before rivalry weekend are really one of the highlights of the season. And uh, I think for us, again, you mentioned you know. Being a neutral observer, a lot of a lot of people who listen to this podcast were, may may have been at a game on Saturday or had one that they're really interested in. But if you have one uh, that that doesn't play till later in the evening, or if you happen to be at home and you get to to jump back and forth between the games, for us, you know, between you, Frank Rossi, and I, at that point on Saturday, we were almost having to coordinate. Like, I'm going to watch this finish, you watch that finish, yeah. and then you watch that finish. So we make sure we see all these great finishes. And uh, we'll recap them for you here on the podcast, but it certainly was uh, a good one. You had overtime games, you had defensive stops, you had huge offensive days. Uh, it, it, were, it really was uh, as good a week as you can ask for, given that it was a pretty decent slate coming in. It, it turned out to be uh, really exciting uh, when we look back at it. It
0: really did take three sets of eyes, three sets of uh, fingers uh, typing on Twitter, that sort of thing to keep track of all of these games. And yeah, it's it's perfect for when you don't have a rooting interest, you don't care who wins the game, you're just interested in the most exciting finish possible. Um, I want to talk about, I think we'll just kind of go in chronological order um, as in the terms of... Uh, which uh, at which time each of these ended., uh, starting with the Carthage, Illinois Wesleyan game, uh, Carthage went up in this game, ten nothing at the half. Carthage left some points on the board at the end of the first half, which um, was something that concerned me a little bit. They had a, a situation where they had a goal to go from the five. And uh, wasn't able to wasn't able to put the ball in the end zone. Had to settle for a field goal. Ended up being ten nothing at the half. Illinois Wesleyan came back right out in the third quarter, bang bang, to go up 13-10. ten. We'll talk about one of those plays uh, specifically in a second. But Carthage, you know, struggled. They had four fourth down conversion attempts, and Illinois Wesleyan stuffed every single one of them. Carthage, uh, with about uh, with a handful of minutes to go in the game, had a 50-yard touchdown that was called back because of a penalty, and uh, it just a, uh, I guess, a combination of great defensive performance by Illinois Wesleyan, struggles on offense for Carthage, but this was a heck of a football game.
1: Yeah, it was, and and that's actually a little bit of a theme this past week, where there were games that were not very high-scoring games, but turned out to be Pretty good games that turned on either defensive play or special teams play. You know, uh, Illinois Wesleyan had the the punt block for a touchdown. And if you get a chance to watch the play of the week reel, that is in there. Um, Pat, it kind of cracked me up on Saturday because I think your st- my stream was behind or you were watching <laughs> live and I was maybe like a minute behind. And maybe. so uh, you and I are messaging back and forth on, on Slack. And uh, you, said, you said, touchdown. And I'm like, no, there's not a touchdown. They're still on like the 40-yard line. And then then you say, no, never mind. There's not a touchdown. And then at that point, I was really eager to see the touchdown uh, and, and see how it came off the board. And uh, it turned out to be a, a pretty key play in that game. Carthage had the ball uh, twice in the fourth quarter with, with pretty good chances uh, to drive down and score. And again, it was a 13-10 game, so they didn't need to punch it in. But they were right about that point on the field where you you know it's a really long field goal, especially for a D3 kicker, and uh, and you know you may you may want to go for it. They elected to go for it on fourth down. Uh, Illinois Wesleyan comes up with a big stop, and then on the final drive, a big interception. To, uh, to shut things down. And now when you look at the long tail of Illinois Wesleyan season, except for the 26-13 loss to North Central, they've really had some some really outstanding defensive games. You go back to the Whitewater game, and you, and you look at a bunch of the games uh, in, in the middle of the season, and now this one against Carthage, they really um, have a defense that they're able to hang their hat on, and it may carry them uh, you know, into the playoffs and, and maybe a couple weeks deep.
0: I'm looking at Illinois Wesley and North Central, a 26-13 game back in week three. Um, You know, they gave up 26 to North Central, but North Central has thrown tons of points up on almost everybody else, and we'll get to the second half of the Bell game coming up in uh, just a few minutes. This was an opportunity for Carthage to kind of continue the trend over the last uh, six days or so of of, uh, throwing a complete wrench into the CCIW. Uh, Weren't quite able to pull it off. And it uh, we we might actually come down to a, a relatively simple tiebreaker, but uh, it it has been a, a much more interesting CCIW this year than just coming down to who wins the North Central Wheaton game. Not that that's not interesting because we love the little brass bell, but it's more interesting when there's more teams involved.
1: Yeah, I think that's for, for everybody, not just for the neutral observers, but for the uh-huh. um, the teams across the conference. When right now you look at the CCIW, you have five teams in it. And it's not every year when Carthage is in the mix, when Milliken is in the mix, along with uh, Illinois Wesleyan, North Central and Wheaton, who are generally pretty competitive. Some years it's been Elmhurst. I think it's it's fun. But it also in, in the case of a conference like the CCIW, um, the Empire 8 is this way this year, too, when you beat up on each other a little bit you may end up having uh, no team that gets a very good p- draw in the first round of the postseason, um, and that could affect how far a-, a team goes. But for right now, especially for-, for teams in the thick of it, it's about as fun as it can be. You have uh, Illinois Wesleyan at 7-1. and one. They've they've played North Central. They've beaten Wheaton 14-10. Uh, they just have the 13-10 win against Carthage, and now that game on November 11th in Week 11 against Milliken, Wasn't one we circled at the beginning of the season. Suddenly, it's going to be a huge game. You have um, now that that Wheaton took control in that second half against North Central back on Monday. And, of course, each team played again on Saturday. Um, But last cycle of podcast, last poll, (laughs) um, didn't factor that game in at all. So now you have a really uh, interesting conference. Where uh, Illinois Wesleyan is on top there five and one seven and one and then Milliken North Central both four and one Wheaton and Carthage are three and two and sort of probably not don't have much of a chance at, at winning the conference unless uh, you know a bunch of teams go down but um, they're still both certainly factors.
0: The second half of the the wheaton north central game really the third quarter just kind of blows everything out uh you you this becomes one of those results i think like stout being beating st thomas uh teams at the lower half of the poll just kind of or just on the outside of the poll with a surprising winner in this case a, a win in blowout fashion as a voter i don't even know what to do with this information which uh, in which wheaton has blown the doors off of north central and uh, simultaneously has also lost to Illinois Wesleyan and, and lost to Milliken. I, I know that it's not really endemic in terms of who wins the conference title or who might get a a berth to the playoffs, but it's definitely, for those of us who vote in the poll, it's a, a conundrum that I don't think
1: can be solved very easily. No, I think you're absolutely right. And at some point deeper in the season, you may have to, as a voter, take some liberties with, um, with the information that you have because it's not always going to square up or triangle up or rectangle up, whichever <laughs> shape you want to pick, however many teams are involved. In this case, it's maybe a pentagon of information um, between the five teams and the CCIW, and all the results aren't going to give you a, a flush order where you're like, this team's definitely one, two, three, four, five. Um, so that that really is the case, and, and you're right, Pat. It all turned on that second half, and to refresh your memories, for those of you out there uh, who, who don't remember what happened or didn't tune in last week north Central uh, took a 13 zero lead uh, in the uh, little brass bell game when when it was played on Saturday Wheaton scores uh minute 12 before the half so it's 13 seven going into the half it was pouring they uh, they tried to wait it out decided they couldn't wait it out uh, because of lightning and so they postponed the game Wheaton has a long-standing practice of not Having games on Sundays. It's an evangelical college. So they uh, reschedule the game for Monday. And when they come back on Monday, it's a completely different game. Wheaton goes uh, seven plays, 78 yards for touchdown, take 14 13 lead. They score again. They score again. As you mentioned, it was uh, quite a third quarter for Wheaton. Uh, they turned a 13 7 game into a 28 13 game by the end of the third quarter, 42 20, the final. And at that point, uh, North Central's ranked fourth in the country. They are still ranked fourth in the country because the poll came out before the game was finished. And so we had all week to uh, to digest that and then digest another result. And uh, now here we are with a a uh, CCIW that doesn't quite make sense, with a top 10 that doesn't quite make sense. And uh, I think a lot of it does trace back to that second half where had that game been played straight through, who knows how it would have finished.
0: Indeed. Uh, One of the other games on Saturday that was coming down to the end of it, an unexpectedly tight game, I would say, for Harden-Simmons, playing at Texas Lutheran, and Cowboys were up 10 points in the third quarter before the Bulldogs rallied. Cowboys needed a fourth-quarter touchdown and a a late interception to secure the 33-30 win. Keith, I was not expecting this to be a tight game. Um, I know Texas Lutheran is obviously bounce back off of the, uh, off of the floor that they uh, plummeted to not quite rock bottom, but somewhere near rock bottom a couple of years ago. Uh, But nonetheless, kind of interesting. And when you think about Harden Simmons first off as a, uh, as a playoff contender, maybe we'll get back to that in a second and and talk about the game first before we get there though.
1: Well, I I actually, I kind of want to bite on that. Uh, Not necessarily the, the playoff part, but when you step back and look at um, a team season, I think it's, it's why the dominance is so impressive when you see Mountain Union do it or you see a Mary Harden-Baylor do it where they're sort of week in, week out. They, they blow out teams. They don't really ever have an off week. Even really, really good teams like Harden-Simmons have weeks where they struggle, not necessarily to, to, to move the ball. Obviously, they, they didn't have any problems uh, moving the ball. But as you mentioned, needed a late uh, interception. They needed the, the score in the fourth quarter to win 33-30. If you look at almost every team across the country, you have that stumble. You have a few hiccups. You have a few games where you have to really grind it out. And over the course of a season, for most teams, you almost look at that as a positive, that they're able to to grind out those kind of wins. But it also kind of puts a big tier, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it, a big divide between right now the top three teams in the country who, who are all three playing really well every single week, and that's Mary Harden, Baylor, Mountain Union, and Wisconsin-Oshkosh. And then a team that's still a a top five, at least top ten on everyone's ballot, uh, team in in Harden-Simmons having to sometimes grind out a victory.
0: I I guess I had not really considered uh, when I saw that St. Thomas had hopped over Harden-Simmons in the poll this week. I had not really considered that it was a Harden-Simmons thing. I thought maybe there was just some random fluctuations in the poll from people not really knowing what to do as we were talked about just a few minutes ago with North Central. I was hoping it wasn't people reacting to the fact that St. Thomas scored 84 points on Saturday because I don't think margin of victory is all that relevant beyond, you know, five touchdowns. Uh, a quadruple monkey stomp doesn't really do anything for me as a voter, but uh, I had not really thought about the fact that, oh yeah, Harden-Simmons struggled and maybe that's why things kind of switched around a bit.
1: Yeah, and I do think people give... St. Thomas, a pass for the uh, the UW Stout loss. Um, I don't know if people just forgot that it happened or or just the fact that St. Thomas has so, been so established and that Stout is from such a respected conference, constantly the, uh, the number one ranked conference when we rank and re-rank the conferences twice a season in kickoff and again after non-conference play in the Around the Nation column. Um, no matter how we slice it, it almost always comes back to with being number one. So maybe St. Thomas gets a little bit of respect for that. And I also think and there's just no other team, especially with the North Central loss, with Linfield having a loss, and with some of the other teams that are having really good seasons, say like your Delaware Valley or your Brockport, um, just not feeling like a team that you you move up to number four in the country. Um Just because of the level of competition that they've played, you know each of those teams have a couple a, a nice win or two the del val Wesley win certainly looms pretty large but um i, I think voters right now are, are stuck in a tough spot because you have those three, and then you don't quite know what to do um at number four, but you you have to pick someone and then everything else slots out from there.
0: We are in a position right now where in the poll the entire Top three are in the top three spots on everybody's ballot. There's uh, nobody who has, you know, Oshkosh number four or um, or Mount Union number four or anything like that. It, it's like there's a very consensus, very much a consensus top three. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, well, I think that speaks to the quality of the panel you've assembled.
0: There we go. The uh, other game, of course, the the third game was the one that went overtime. It kind of slipped because of that. It nicely. Kind of slipped out of that time slot and extended out so that we could watch the the rest of it. We really appreciate that uh, for the folks at uh, Washington and Jefferson. That was awful nice. Thanks for uh, pushing that into overtime. Um, w and J missed a field goal. I'm just going to skip ahead to the end of regulation for just a second. Um, missed a field goal wide right with uh, 15 seconds left. But they had rallied from two touchdowns down uh, with uh, you know midway through the fourth quarter. Down 27-19, scored and converted the uh, the two point conversion to tie it up at 27 apiece. Then WJ scores first in overtime, and, and there's something to talk about that uh, with that for a second here. Uh, Westminster had, you know, as we said, got out to that big lead, and their defense had continued to play pretty well, but offensively, struggling a little bit down the stretch, had to convert fourth down twice on that drive, and you know, this is an overtime drive that starts from the 25. Um, and that includes uh Colombo the quarterback barely making it across the two yard line to set up uh, first and goal they score a touchdown on the two point conversion attempt they go for two first of all in the first overtime uh quarterback goes scrambling finally gets the ball off ball's knocked down in the end zone ball game uh, i think that pretty much covered it right
1: yeah yeah that was a good recap uh, you know quick about a quick synopsis as as you can make of that game and and i think if you want to simplify it even more, Westminster is the upstart. W and J is the team that almost always wins this conference. At least it's usually uh, usually them and uh, Thomas Moore at the top of the, pack. That's
0: when I full, leader of the pack.
1: Westminster trying to break through, and they're out in front. They, you know, it's happening for them. They they leading by two touchdowns early in that game, leading by eight, but. You get to a point in the fourth quarter where they were really hanging on, for uh, whether it's for dear life or whatever else you might hang on for. Um, you mentioned Pat; they struggled to move the ball uh, late in that game. They struggled to move it in overtime. And usually, I would say, why why go for two early in overtime? Um, you know, they, they don't, didn't have a problem with their kicker; they kick it, play another overtime. But when your team is spent, when your team is reeling. They're they're um they're they're hanging on. Uh, the game's at W W&J, so W and J's got all the momentum. They got the crowd behind them. Um, I think it's fine to go for two in that situation. If you don't believe your team is gonna outplay the other team in the second overtime, you take a shot at maybe uh, getting out of there with a win. And it wasn't a bad two point play call. It looked like he uh, quickly may have had a uh, someone out of the backfield in the flat uh, very early on on that play. Uh, doesn't make the throw. Beautiful job of buying time, rolling to his right, looking into, uh, into the end zone. And at that point, you know, it wasn't, it, it, it's, it's I don't want to describe it as a jump ball because it's not that sort of throw, but it's a throw where, uh, kind of like the one we saw from Williams uh, wh- last week, where it's a throw into traffic in the end zone. And if you get it through there, it's a beautiful throw. It's an amazing moment. Your team wins. And if you don't, you lose the game uh, on a two-point conversion. And it's just, I, I, you know, you can. I don't think you can beat them up for strategy or for play call or for the throw or anything like that. It's just some of those you hit and some of those you don't.
0: The other thing I wanted to point out, the aside I mentioned earlier, Alex Rouse, the starting quarterback for WNJ, got knocked out in overtime. Uh, got knocked out of the game, uh, running on a second down and six, went out of bounds, got hurt, came out. Jacob Adams came in and finished that drive he converted the uh he converted the the uh, third down and then threw a, a touchdown pass to uh give them that uh, 34-27 lead and they end up winning that game 34-33. So, you know, we're going to talk about this also later in this podcast about other key players who have gone out. We don't know anything and aren't likely to know anything about Alex Rouse until WJ takes the field next, but that's just uh something else to keep an eye on.
1: One other thing that that really stands out from uh from this two-point conversion attempt is that, you know, how amazing is it that instead of Westminster winning and thrusting itself into the pool C picture behind who would, uh, if w had lost, the pool A leader in, in that conference would be Case Western Reserve, that could be the play that keeps Case Western out of the playoffs if they end up losing the tiebreaker to w Both of those teams... Case Western Reserve and WJ are still on track to finish the season undefeated in the pack. As we mentioned pretty much every week on the podcast, they don't play each other head to head. So from uh, from Case Western's standpoint, they're they're watching this game from afar or hearing the score updates or or they find out after their game. Uh, they must have really wanted Westminster to win because that that was their best chance to take control of the conference. Now it could come back to to bite them because uh, Pool C may not have room for, it for a second team.
0: That's interesting to picture. Case had a night game. Case had a 7 o'clock kickoff at Geneva. Could you have been uh, watching on your cell phone while you're uh, while you're waiting to get ready for that game? With uh, less rhetoricalness, we want to talk about our sponsor for this week's podcast, and that's Fanraise. who you can find at thefanraze.com. Keith, we have our store set up. I know I have uh, a T-shirt and a coffee mug coming your way and one my way too. I think that the size I asked for was for the shirt and not the mug. But Keith, if you get a coffee mug, that's XL, I, I suppose you could probably make use of that too.
1: I'll figure out what to fill it with.
0: The, uh, the, the best things, one of the best things about fan Raise is that I don't have to ship you this. If you're a coach who's running a, a store for your program, for your fans, for you know parents of your players for your players for that matter for preseason camp and that sort of thing. You don't have to handle all of this stuff. You don't get boxes then from your supplier of stuff that you have to go through, sort all your larges and your XLs and your double X's and whatever and send them out or have them, you know, ready for your players to pick up when they come to camp. This is something that's all handled by somebody else as it should be. You should be able to focus on your primary yeah, primary criteria we're talking about football uh your primary focus which is coaching your football team my primary focus which is running my organization and uh editing editing stories and and uh, babbling on podcasts and let somebody else handle all that work and that's what Fanraise does for you
1: you know the other thing that that fan Raise is is uh it's it's run by people who um, have, have been d3 been around d3 they understand what it's what it's like so you're um, the the challenges in, in each D three school has its own unique set of challenges. Uh, the challenges that you face aren't uh, aren't foreign to them because uh, you know they understand what it's like.
0: And that's a that's a great point. Uh, we like to champion all awesome things done by D three grads um, and by former Division three players. And this is one of those great things. So check out Fanraise at thefanraise.com The F A N R A I S E. And uh, you know, you can set up your store now, just like we did, or you can visit our store at the d3fb.thefanraise.com. Before we move on into uh, our categories and the rest of our rundown, another big game to talk about from Saturday, Keith is uh, this game out west between uh, Linfield and George Fox.
1: Yeah, so let's talk about the, uh, the 12-6 Linfield-George Fox game in which the Bruins went 80 yards a score with uh, no time left, and they finished with 144 total yards to Linfield's 151 in the rain. Uh, Linfield had the wind at their back in the second and fourth quarter. They put up three short drives for field goals. They had the choice, by the way, at the half and took the wind for the fourth quarter. So basically that game is pretty much a shutout if uh, if George Fox doesn't score at uh, with time running out.
0: I tell you, it's almost a double shutout if uh, George Fox uh, can hang on to the football a little bit better. We'll, we'll talk about a little bit of the specifics in this game coming up a little bit later on in the rundown, um, but you know, we talked about, you mentioned the total yardage, 144 to 151. Um, I think we've said a few times over the course of the season how impressed we were with the Mary Harden-Baylor defense and also the Linfield defense, but in this case, it's as much Torrential rain and wind, and specifically, uh, wind blows north to south along that uh, stadium. You know, Keith, you and I have been there on a on a much calmer day. I've been there on a day in which I really wish the Cat Dome actually were a dome, um, because uh, what it is is really just a covered grandstand, which is not all that unusual in Oregon, by the way. Um, but it was it was just as much that as uh, as the defense. But for uh, for George Fox, I want to talk about George Fox impact too before we move on. Another, I guess, a bit of a confidence booster, even if you lose 12-0 and you don't put up that uh, touchdown as time expires to make it 12-7. That's still uh, 39 points better or so than George Fox has ever done against Linfield.
1: Yeah, I mean, they clearly belong on the same field as UW-Platteville, a 30-28 loss back in Week 1, and Linfield here 12-6. Now, they might not make the playoffs. They, they may finish as a two-loss team on the outside looking in with a pretty nice strength of schedule. But as things look now, um, for those five at-large spots, the competition's going to be pretty tough. So they would wish they'd won one of these two close games. But I think when you step back from it and you're looking at George Fox, where that program is headed, it's brand new, brought football back after, well, I don't know, what was it was a 50-some-odd years. They're in a great shape now. And it's a program that we're talking about on the podcast. It's Top 25 Votes. Uh, but you belong on the same field as some of the elite teams across the country. I think that is a really big positive, although it's probably not much consolation when you feel like, man, if we could have just put a couple of touchdown drives together, we could have had a, a win that shook up the nation.
0: A two-loss team, ranked number 21 with a really good strength of schedule and some great non-conference opponents. A couple teams we're going to talk about next uh, are at, kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum. But for Trine on Saturday, they got their uh, first win of uh, what I would consider national consequence—they beat Hope and beat Hope pretty badly by uh, the score of fifty to fourteen. You know, Trine had run the table coming up to that game; they were six and zero, but really had played literally nobody with uh, even a five hundred record, let alone a winning record. They hadn't played any of the good teams in the MIAA A yet. Um, they had all those crossover games with the NAC, and they none of those games were against teams that are contenders in the NAC either. So. Trine was this huge, huge unknown, and if we know nothing else, at least they were able to shut down Hope on
1: Saturday. Yeah, they played really well. Uh, Hope, their big calling card is the running game, and, and Trine outrushed them pretty significantly. So I think, Pat, you hit it on the head. When you, you see teams that are they're playing well, but you want to see how they do in their their games against other good teams. And sometimes, because of the way the schedule shakes out, you don't have too many other good teams on your schedule. And so you really have to impress in those games. And I think um, Trine has done that. And now you may see them start to creep into the uh, bottom of the top 25, certainly in control right now in the MIAA as far as the playoff picture goes. And for those of you who are interested in the playoff picture, remember the the, the five main playoff criteria. It be your win-loss record, common opponents, head-to-head, um, region wins against regionally ranked opponents which we're going to getting pretty close to seeing regional rankings from the ncaa selection committee and uh and then that last one is strength of schedule and we mention it here on the podcast pretty frequently the best way for you to find it if you want to take a look at it is on uh on d3football.com under the news tab i believe you got um right under the news tab you scroll down there is strength of schedule, and those uh, that will show you how the NCA computes it. It's uh, two-thirds opponent's winning percentage, and then one-third opponent's opponent's winning percentage puts it into a formula you can understand. Basically, 500 is even. Anything, the closer you get to 600 or, or better is good. Anything low in the fours is not so good. And the reason why we bring it up is because we're looking at teams like Lake Forest, like Trine, like Case Western Reserve, who are – very much in the uh, playoff picture if they're, they're pool A teams. And even when they are, even if they're in as automatic qualifiers, that's going to affect where they get seeded and what their first-round matchup is. Um, but those, those teams are very close to the bottom, even though they're 7-0. Case Western um, at, at the 234 spot on these on this. And again, you know, this doesn't take into account all the playoff ineligible teams.
0: That's two hundred and thirty fourth out of two hundred and thirty seven teams uh, listed.
1: Yeah, you got Case at the bottom at seven and zero. Lake Forest very close to the bottom. You McMurray, Eureka teams from um, from conferences. Saint Scholastica, you know, from the UMAC. The that strength of schedule number is is going to help you explain why uh, those teams they may get into the postseason, but they're not going to get a, a very good matchup. And if you're one of those teams hoping for a a pool C bid. Uh, you really need to have something. Besi- if you have a low strength of schedule number, you really need to have something else to uh, to to boost your playoff candidacy. You know, a win over another really good program, a head-to-head win over one of the teams, a team where you know someone else who's on the board also has played that team, and and you have a victory. You you need wins over regionally ranked opponents because um, that low strength of schedule number is really, in a lot of ways, all you have to go on when. You're looking at, you're comparing nine and one teams who have very similar records and and won't have a lot of crossover uh, opponents.
0: Lake Forest, uh, 232nd, which is sixth from the bottom, seven and zero. They face Monmouth coming up this week. That's uh, that's what everybody's waiting for. I think in terms of top 25 votes, going back up to the top for a second, uh, it's really a, a team that's also pretty close to the top of this list as well. Um, in Brockport. Brockport is a, a team that we talked a lot about earlier in the season, when, for example, when they beat Hobart, that sort of thing. Now they're just kind of cruising. They uh, they shut out Hartwick. Hartwick hadn't been shut out in four years. We had just written a story on how these two great receivers made it really difficult to shut down the Hartwick offense. And Brockport comes out and says, "Yeah, yeah, we can do that." Forty-five, nothing. And um, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what else Brockport can do in the regular season to uh, to. You know, kind of uh, like you were talking about earlier, but uh, certainly having a fantastic year right now.
1: Yeah, and it, it's a bit of a shame, I guess, because it, it feels like maybe we're not talking enough about Brockport. But you and I were, were on them pretty early, and I actually had them in the top 10, maybe a little prematurely back at, after week three. So maybe I uh, because I jumped the gun then, it's been less top of mind now, less something that, that uh, I feel like they're not as new- to me, as maybe they are to, to some folks around the country. But also, the spotlight shines on a team the week it plays its biggest games. And Brockport really hasn't had one this season because of the way the Empire has has shaken out. And it's still uh, a couple weeks before they play Alfred. Alfred's now coming off a, a pair of losses. So even that game is uh, is not as big as it once was. And it may be, bef- it may be the postseason before we really uh, see how Alfred matches up against another really great team. You
0: met Brockport there. Um, Brockport is a team that's not quite in my top 10, but uh, they can see the top 10 from their house So on, on my ranking. So let's just keep it at that. Time for game balls. And, Keith, I'm giving my game ball to Duke Mackle. He's a safety for Linfield. On a day in which the Wildcats scored three of their four field goals on short fields, it was Mackle who created two of those. First, he blocks a Jason Santoni punt, sets up Linfield on the George Fox 18-yard line. Uh, Four plays and three yards later, Willie Warren kicks his first field goal of the game. Uh, later in the second quarter, Mackle knocks the ball out of George Fox quarterback Grant Schrader's hands as Schrader's trying to escape his grip. Schrader, good second, third effort, except when he gets the ball knocked out of his hands by Mackle. That sets up a, uh, Linfield on the 11. Eight yards later, another field goal. Uh, Mackel also three tackles and a pass breakup before leaving the game in the third quarter because of injury. That's another guy to keep an eye on. But uh, even though his overall numbers might not look impressive three tackles, you know, pass breakup, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, uh, I'm giving him my game ball because those big plays helped Linfield get on the board in a day in which the defenses and maybe the weather a little bit prevailed.
1: I'm going to give mine to the entire defense and special teams of Wittenberg, which prevailed against DePaul 52-6 on Saturday. I watched a good bit of this first half, Pat, which was uh, supposed to be a game-of-the-week worthy clash of 6-0 and teams. Only one delivered, though, in one of those everything-that-can-go-wrong-does kind of games or go right, depending on perspective. The Tigers, the ones from Wittenberg, they scored on a punt return, an interception return, and a fumble return, gathering four turnovers and making viewers seem like they couldn't look away. Literally, uh, I was trying to work, and every time I looked back, Wittenberg had the ball again, and I was like, how do they keep getting the ball back? Uh, every Every time you look away, uh, DePaul, you see they should be taking a kickoff. They should have, a, have run more than three plays there. Um, every time they got it back, uh, they had it. They were getting it back. They were scoring. It was nuts. It had a lot to do with that special teams and defense. And so uh, that's who gets my game ball.
0: team on the rise in my ballot, Keith, is that Wittenberg team. I, this game finally gave me the confirmation I needed that they were worthy of the top 15 spot that uh, everybody else was giving them, or at least enough other people were giving them. Tigers win versus the Tigers, 52-6 over former number 25 to paw was worth about five spots to them on my ballot. Uh, again, not quite in my top 15, but, uh, well, I, I said this earlier. You can see the top 15 from their house in my ballot. Uh, if I keep saying this thing, eventually it's going to make some sense.
1: Well, that that on-the-rise team, that was made sense. I think I think you picked the, the right team there. Uh, I went with Linfield. The Wildcats didn't actually move up on my ballot because there was nowhere for them to go. But this is a good opportunity to talk a little bit more about that number four spot beyond the dominant top three of Mary Harden, Baylor, Mountain Union, and Oshkosh. I have Linfield there because their 5-1 mark includes the non-conference loss against Mary Harden, Baylor, the two Northwest Conference games against George Fox and Whitworth, and a win against Chapman, which has now won four straight and leads the Skyak. Sure, there are other teams that are undefeated, but I don't think anyone has played the variety of competition that Linfield has and has fared as well.
0: Now you've got me trying to load up my ballot, and I don't think I can load the ballot up fast enough to figure out who my number four is without getting to the point where I would... Oh, St. Thomas. Yep, I guess I'm one of those ones giving him a pass. My slider on my ballot this week, Keith Heidelberg, and I'm sorry to say I was really long on Heidelberg last week, almost long enough to have been the one to put them in the top 25 single-handedly. to come on out and get you whooping. I'll take the blame for that. I think I was desirous that a second OAC team be in the top 25, and uh, clearly we're just not going to have those kind of things this year. That's just not going to be a thing. So uh, uh, if I had put Wheaton on my ballot last week instead, we could have had the Thunders' ranking changing in the middle of a game and also maybe been a little bit prescient of the third quarter that blew it all open Monday night against North Central.
1: Speaking of North Central, they're my slider. It's a bit of a delayed reaction from that bad second half against Wheaton on Monday, but voters now have five CCIW teams that all have played at least two of the other teams in the group. There's not a clear leader that emerges when you pit them all against one another, so you have to reconcile that. Ultimately, my ballot shook out with Illinois Wesleyan at number nine, North Central at 14, but overall, it was North Central at 10, Illinois Wesleyan at 12, and Wheaton back into the poll at 23. Milliken is also the first also receiving votes team. I think voters are giving uh, NCC a pass, maybe, for that lightning-delayed second half at Wheaton, just like we seem to be giving St. Thomas a pass for the UW-Stout loss. The Tommies are ranked number four overall, and while one could expect North Central to rise again in a similar way, the Cardinals have played all their big games already, and they only have one left in two weeks against Carthage.
0: Yeah, I guess if you're looking at North Central and you're trying to figure out where to drop them below, um, you know, You've got right there Illinois Wesleyan. You can't drop them below Illinois Wesleyan, and your your square, your rectangle, whatever starts to get confusing. Um, do people think enough of Brockport to make Brockport number ten? There's there's one point between them, 370 for North Central, 369 for Brockport. That's a that's a that's a very close right there. But I think that uh, you couldn't drop Illinois Wesleyan much further than that, and all or couldn't drop North Central much further than that is what I'm trying to say.
1: Yeah, I guess you got a good point. I'm usually a very strong uh, head-to-head voter, but in this case, uh, it, there's too many the heads, res- right? And and it's it's all in that same group. You start stretching it out to that the Whitewater losses early in the season, and and uh, Concordia Morehead and St. Thomas, and you can connect them all back to each other, but you just can't make them all make sense. <laughs>
0: There's no Pepe Sylvia. The man does not exist, okay? So I decided, oh, buddy, I got to dig a little deeper. There's no Pepe Sylvia. You got to be kidding me. I got boxes full of Pepe. I, I now have this uh, conspiracy theory on my wall. We have all of the things uh, uh, posted up on the bulletin board, picture of each team, and a, I, I ran out of red string.
1: Yeah, as a yarn, collecting, thumbtacks, I got you.
0: Keith, my hidden highlight features UW Oshkosh running back Mitch Gerharts. That's not a name you hear very often, unless you're, you know, at Oshkosh or somewhere in the WIAC. Uh, This is a sophomore. He's Dylan Hecker's backup with the Titans. Last year, he had almost half of his rushing yards in one game, and on Saturday, he filled in for Hecker very nicely as well. Gerhardt's 18 carries for 172 yards and a touchdown in the team's 42-28 win at UW-La Crosse. Remember, last week we mentioned Hecker came up hurting on the final series at UW-Platteville, so Gerhardt's could uh, potentially get even more work. Again, that's information we're not going to be able to know until Oshkosh takes the field again.
1: Well, my hidden highlight involves Trinity, uh, the one from Texas, in its ongoing mission to cause heart problems for all of its followers because they nearly blew a 27-0 late third quarter lead at Sewanee. But after the Tigers, the ones from Sewanee, closed the 27-23 with 9.46 left, Trinity ran all but three plays. After Ben Millett and Cash Crane made a key tackle on a third and three, Sewanee punted, and Trinity milked the final 5.54 off the clock hanging on for their fifth victory. The Tigers' past six games have been, de- been decided by six points or fewer, and they also nearly blew a 24-0 fourth-quarter lead against Birmingham Southern a few weeks back. Last week, they were the ones who nearly rallied from 20 down to beat center. The Tigers have also won twice in overtime and probably have now stacked up a lifetime of late-game memories this season.
0: We really need a, a name for that kind of game, one where the you run out the clock like that for five minutes, six minutes, eight minutes, because it... Those are the sort of things that you and I love to talk about. Now we just need to figure out how to say it easily.
1: Yeah, all I got is is uh, plays off milking the clock, and I don't think that's really all that appropriate.
0: Uh, we're going to go on to double take. My double take was uh, about the Linfield-George Fox game. I, I think we might have talked about this. Uh, Linfield beat George Fox in case you missed the first 40 minutes of the podcast, beaten him by the score of 12-7. to 7. I'm not surprised by the victory. I'm surprised by the combined total. Obviously weather, et cetera, et cetera. But you just look at a game, uh a score these days and see twelve to seven and you think that's that's a baseball score. I I haven't had a baseball score reference in a while. Um but uh not a not a football score, at least not a four quarter football score.
1: If there was a uh around the nation podcast drinking game though, Pat making the baseball score reference would definitely be a cue to uh to to tilt the cup back. Yeah. Well, while we're talking about low-scoring games, you could also add Hampton-Sydney, only scoring six points against Washington and Lee. That's a a school that's been known for its high-powered offense for the past 15 years, maybe longer. Uh, Or Ohio Northern 7, Muskingum 6, another low-scoring game uh, on Saturday. But I'm going to take for my double-take Marietta Wamping Heidelberg. The Pioneers didn't force any turnovers, and they only had one sack, but somehow they outgained the student princes 563 to 376. They built a 24 halftime lead that grew to 37 7 in the fourth quarter of a stunning 44 21 win. Marietta was 10 of 20, converting third and fourth downs, while Heidelberg was just 3 of 13. Roger Walker also had a four touchdown day for Marietta, which is still known as one of Division Three's best baseball schools.
0: There you go. You get to make a baseball reference. Very, very, very good. Very well okay. done. Came full circle. There, indeed. My stat of the week has very little to do with baseball. Uh, Chiton Tomlin, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I do not have pronunciation 101 on that. Uh, tied the NCAA Division three record with nine touchdown passes. Nine times. For Mount St. Joseph in the Lions' 71-27 to 27 win at Anderson. And he did so by completing 27-48 passes for 500 yards with no interceptions. I wish some of the top performances in Division Three this year would have come against better teams, but then again, this uh, the record at Tide was set against a 1-9 team whose only win was against a 1-9 team, whose only win was against an 0-10 team, and you can follow the red yarn through all of that, I'm sure. Four of Tomlin's touchdowns were to Grayson Roberts, and here's Tomlin, who chatted with around the nation's Adam Turrer on Sunday. When did it sink in that, that everything was kind of clicking for you guys? And all? I mean, it was right away in the first quarter, he put up 30 points. Yes, sir. Uh, we came out very strong. We haven't done that much this year, but uh, we came out very strong in the first half, or also in the first quarter, and just everybody was clicking today. Our O-line, our receivers, our
1: running backs, and even myself.
0: And, you know, Grayson had a huge game, too. You know, having that connection with him, how, how much confidence does that give you guys uh, that you know you can kind of have that connection with a, a receiver? Well, with Garrett Weaver leaving, we uh, filled the spot with the Grayson. He played safety last year, but... Uh, He came in and he's done very well at Z, the position at Z, and uh, I think he's accounted for like 800 yards this year and like 10 plus touchdowns. So he's filling the position very well, and we have a really good, really good connection between us. Every time I scramble, I'm looking for Grayson, and uh, he's just
1: he's always open. I feel like. (laughs) For my stat of the week, let's go to Franklin and Marshall, which held Dickinson to 11 yards on Saturday, total 11. The Diplomats opened new Shadek Stadium against the rival Red Devils, holding them to 20 yards passing and negative nine rushing. F&M held the ball for nearly 40 minutes, went up 49-0 at the half in front of a homecoming cloud, and allowed zero third down conversions in 10 tries. Dickinson had four first downs, they ran 37 plays, and gained just 0.3 yards per play. Whether it was bad offense, great defense, or a combination of both, it's just as good a stat of the week as the QB joining the nine-touchdown club.
0: And I think importantly, it sets the stadium record for Franklin and Marshall for best defense by yards.
1: I'm not even going to react to that.
0: It's, that's probably fair. Keith, uh, how, about you, uh, how about you give me the rest of my whooping and talk about quick misses?
1: Well, actually, I think uh, you get off pretty easily on quick misses. Each Friday morning, five panelists and a guest get together to forecast the weekend. So you as a fan, you know which games you should be paying attention to besides the one you're at, the one you're playing in, whatever the case may be. Um, Part of the deal for us making predictions is we get to pat ourselves on the back for what we get right, and we be good sports and take some friendly ribbing when we're wrong. Quick misses is where we highlight the wrong parts. And to start off, Frank Rossi and Pat, you do not get any credit for picking DePaul Wittenberg as Game of the Week, although we'll blame DePaul for not showing up since it was a perfectly reasonable pick beforehand Uh, for the first time this season, if not for the first time in as long as I can recall. No one on the panel picked the top 25 upset, although Frank uh, and Adam Turr were oh so close on WNJ. Uh, Pat, you and I were close too on Illinois-Westland, but Wartburg and Brockport were also top 25 upset picks. Uh, they both won easily. I uh, had another almost in the category of former Mountain Union opponent pick to win as Averitt ran out of time down 21-15 with fourth and goal from the four and a false start caused a game-ending 10-second runoff. And Averett, instead of beating North Carolina Wesleyan, which is also a former Mountain Union non-conference opponent, they uh, they lose that game in uh, excruciating fashion. And I don't think anyone gets a hit for the St. John Fisher Ithaca question, which was quite the creative question. It made us do uh, more research than uh, than maybe we care to for our quick hits pits, picks uh, because the uh, the bombers. 35-10 victory didn't resemble any of the previous years that anyone on the panel chose.
0: No, there were definitely years available, though. If we wanted to look for a 35-10 to 10 game, if the website's going to load fast enough for me, 48-10 to Ithaca be St. John Fisher back in 1998. Not that too many of us were paying attention specifically to that uh, game, which has become a rivalry now. Um, Keith, I give you credit for taking the uh, the least safe former Mount Union opponent pick. Um, I, I saw you picked Aver and I'm like, yeah, uh, okay, best of luck to you. Uh, in the terms of the hits, uh, we had uh, asked people to pick a team named Tigers to win. This was uh, the Occidental Memorial Quick Hits question. I chose Iowa Wesleyan. I wanted to get the uh, most obscure one possible, and they beat Minnesota Morris, which is where Occidental's coach was hired from in August. I did not do that intentionally i did not connect those red threads bad to for me you would probably be excused for not knowing iowa Wesleyan was a division three school they have a 386 full-time undergraduates they're still transitioning into division three it will be next year before they're eligible for the playoffs uh, if that's ever an instance because they've only put up one winning season in 2014 um let's see uh i would we have to go back backtrack into last week um, we're going to give uh, Adam Turr a gift, I think, for calling Ursinus losing to Susquehanna because he called that last week, as we recall. Uh, but actual points to Frank Rossi and Dave McHugh because they picked last week North Central as the top 25 team most likely to be upset. Um, but we'll, we'll probably dock Frank about a quarter of a point uh, of credit because he demanded retroactive credit in our Slack channel this past week. So you know, just for being the guy who points it out to the teacher, um, we're not going to give him the full credit for that.
1: Well, I think those are some of the most impressive quick hits of the year, uh, going to Iowa Wesleyan and going back a week in time to uh, to get the quick hits.
0: Every week we throw out there on Sunday nights, a reminder that you can ask us a question on Twitter, which we will answer on the podcast. You can also answer uh, ask us several questions, which we will not answer answer on the podcast we might answer them in twitter but if you were going to ask us who wins a national title we're not going to answer that could be someone in purple and this question comes from lfc underscore football that's jim catanzaro the head coach for the lake forest foresters asking us what's more impressive in the modern era 200 yards receiving or 200 yards rushing and yeah uh, keith just uh Looking at what I see in terms of team of the week nominations in any given week, I'm not sure I can. Uh, I'm not sure I can easily point at one or, or the other being significantly more prevalent.
1: Yeah, first, I love having a coach ask us a question for once because usually it's us peppering them with queries. Uh, this course is not any old question. Lake Forest improved to seven and zero on Saturday with Joey Valdivia rushing for 224 yards on just 19 carries, all in the first half against Grinnell. The easy answer is the rushing totals are more impressive because teams throw the ball more than they did 20 or 30 years ago, but you also see a lot more single back or featured back than you did in the 1980s when T formations and the wishbone were all the rage. Backs nowadays can get 20 to 25 touches pretty easily in a game. Uh, a wide receiver or tight end has to make his impact on generally much fewer targets than a back has carries, and he rarely has the benefit of knowing he's going to get the ball for sure on a given play. So I don't know if there's a right answer to the question. It certainly depends on how an offense is crafted and how the defense you're playing against is attempting to stop your offense. If you're forcing me to answer here and not cop out, I'll say the backs. But I don't think it's as cut and dried as it might seem.
0: How the defense is attempting to stop your offense – if the defense is capable of stopping your offense which is also a a question sometimes as well to send us a twitter question for the podcast hit us at d3 football basically any time between 8 and 10 p.m eastern time on a sunday night we'll take the one we deem most interesting and we might respond to you on twitter as well if you're not interesting enough to make the podcast that's not necessarily that you're not interesting it just means craig brickspear we might have answered your question most recently maybe twice already this season and we weren't going to do it a third time. But if you listen back through the podcast, sir, you'll probably hear the answer to your question kind of peppered throughout the first uh, 30 minutes of our podcast. Keith, before we move on to uh, some, of the, uh, some of the more thoughtful... No, that's not a very good way to say that. But before we move on to every thought of yours, two of the big stories from the past week we have to catch back up on before we uh, get out of here. Occidental, uh, at least didn't wait until Friday this time. Earlier in the week, they called off the entire season. Occidental football for 2017 is done. I don't know. I'm, uh, I'm not super thrilled about that. I don't uh, like when we lose a Division Three football team anywhere, and I'm a little bit concerned about where Occidental football goes from here.
1: Well, the, the thing that really stands out to me is just how quickly it all happened. Because Occidental, if you would have asked, I don't know, two, three years ago, if you, would have, if you would have had you and I pick a D3 program that was going to cancel a season in the next two or three years, I don't think we would have picked Occidental. There's certainly some schools we, we uh, could see coming. Some, some schools have uh, money issues or their program uh, doesn't have a lot of players on a year-to-year basis. But Occidental is a healthy institution. It's been a healthy football program for the most part up until recently and it was sort of these uh certain things that happened uh in in a row and then you know when you talk to people on the inside they feel like maybe there's a lack of institutional support for football and uh and that hurts it certainly wasn't easy to to go through the coaching changes and to, to bring on a new guy in August and even though in the times that that Adam Turr has talked to him he's been uh, Fairly upbeat about what would be a pretty terrible situation. You, you wouldn't blame someone for saying, "I, I want to go back to my, uh, uh, my uh, other job or uh, pick some, you know, go just go somewhere else and forget about this thing. This was a terrible move." You know, uh, Rob Cushman hasn't said any of that, and and I, I think Occidental probably has still potential to be a very good football program. Um, again, it's a well-known school. It's in uh, the Eagle Rock section of Los Angeles, so it shouldn't be in theory, hard to attract football players. Um, you know, Obviously, you're looking for elite student athletes, not just elite athletes. Um, and, and California has a ton of those already. But I, I think it's fairly disappointing, but it also is somewhat baffling because there are plenty of schools, Pat, that you and I could name where you wonder how they keep the football program afloat. But Occidental shouldn't be one of them.
0: The uh, other story, of course, is this back and forth and back and forth at Albright, on the team, off the team, reinstated. And then, you know, of course, reinstated doesn't mean that uh, that your backup quarterback has to actually come back to the team because that was not a, a place he felt necessarily was uh, a good place for him to play football any any longer for some reason.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's not even all that surprising. Uh, and I think in uh, in, in the... The quote that uh, I read in the Reading Eagle from uh, from Jarry Durant is that when he, um, you know, if maybe the, the, it had been sorted out quickly, there may have been an avenue to, to come back on the team, but uh, that that week where he sort of, um, I don't want to say hung out to dry because obviously he made his choice and uh, and the team made its choice, but there was, um, you know, I, I guess, just, you know, bad... Bad feelings. It's hard. It's hard to pretend that all didn't happen and then go back on the team and and for, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, go to war with each other on Saturdays um, when, you know, you're openly calling out whether you trust one another. Um, you know, the school, I think that the school president has made a, a pretty serious effort to try to rectify the situation with the the school community Um I think the football program, you know, they may just have to k- kind of take their lumps for a little bit and and move on. Um, but I don't. I think it probably made sense for the team to move in the in, the, in opposite direction uh, that the team and and uh, and Durant. Now I don't know what happened to the two other players who got pulled into this, suspended, and then offered a spot back on the team. To be totally honest with you, I I lost track of that uh that string that that red yarn thumbtack so so to, to that part of it um i think at this point it's kind of a, a i don't know i don't want to say an old story but it, it's it's you know what happened happened and, and both sides now have to to pick up the pieces and move on
0: Keith is part of my first every thought, kind of continuing on the thoughts we were just talking about. So Albright loses to Stevenson on Saturday. I don't think it's for lack of a backup quarterback. I think it's for lack of being able to, say, cover Preston Addo, which is not particularly unusual. Not the first time that's happened. Addo, eight catches for 165 yards, uh, including a touchdown, 61-yard touchdown that put them up 26-16 with 5.48 to go. Albright, two weeks ago, we're talking about them as a MAC championship contender, Last week we're talking about them if when we're talking about them uh, on the field, we're talking about maybe they can be in the regional rankings and kind of boost Delaware Valley's resume. Now we're talking about them being five and two and four and two, and uh, Stevenson picking up a fourth win.
1: look, that's happened this season to a couple of teams where um, something bigger than football ha- has consumed your team for uh, for a couple of weeks, and I think Wheaton is a pretty good example of how. You can you can fight through that and and get the focus back on the field. At some point, you know, Wheaton lost a, a couple of big games, but that uh, that turnaround in the second half against North Central proved that you know Mike Swider and his his coaching staff could can boil everything down to just being able to to win a couple of quarters of football and uh, and let let go of everything outside the program. I think Saint Scholastica is another example of. A team that got some publicity for a reason. It didn't want to get publicity way back in week one, and they've uh, even really from right when it happened. They said, "Look, we're going to put this aside, and we're going to be able to to keep on playing." So that's kind of what Albright uh, needs to do now for its last few games because you're not going to the playoffs. You may you may be able to qualify for a bowl game, but um, you only have a couple weeks left now to, together. So you might as well uh, you know make the most of it.
0: Something else that I spent a lot of time thinking about this weekend uh, or this week a blocked field goal that goes viral gets 350,000 some views on YouTube by the way that was awesome thank you everybody for watching that on YouTube um cuz that's like 20 times as many people as listen to this podcast but now we got blocked kick block field goal returns coming out of the woodwork nice returns from Cortland and from Birmingham Southern this weekend and aurora for that matter uh defensive return of a blocked PAT until you can do it with your kicker and your kicker can advance into the end zone i'm sorry it's not going to be it's not going to be a skylar not going to be skylar Nerig
1: for wabash Yeah, that was a heck of a uh, play of the week reel this week 17 plays in uh in the play of the week reel Hey, uh, Pat, raise your hand if you had Union running off seven wins after their season opening 20-6 to loss to Husson. Uh,
0: Keith, Frank, Keith, we do not do this podcast on video. I don't know if you're aware of that. That's somebody else.
1: I mean, if you raise your hand fast enough, we might be able to hear the whoosh sound. No? Okay, well, yeah, if you had Union running off seven wins, uh, pat yourself on the back, congratulate yourself, make some audible noise. Uh, Frank's alma mater beat Hobart on Saturday for the first time since 2009 to improve to 7-1 and one and make the rest of the nation want to peer in on that rivalry with RPI for the first time in a while.
0: Yeah, I had five in a row, I think, for Union, uh, but not seven. Seven is the number of turnovers for Alfred, however, on Saturday. Now the Saxons have lost two in a row. RPI's win against Alfred doesn't do anything in that Liberty League race, but it does remind people uh, RPI is a contender to do something in the conference as well. Hobart had its way with RPI a couple of weeks ago. At the seam- the teams seem to kind of have gone in diverging directions since. It, it would definitely be pretty cool to have a Dutchman Shoes title game in Week 11 in the Liberty League. I might even be interested in going and having a couple of uh, Irish car bombs with the old gang. I just assume that that tailgating crew is still there from 2006, the last time I was at a Shoes game. They might That's have never even left the parking lot, for all I know. Keith, this is—we're uh, about an hour into this podcast, and uh, we talked about what a great week, week eight was, and uh, we got week nine coming up, and um, shit's getting serious.
1: Whoa, are we saying that now on the podcast? Yeah. It
0: is. No, we have no FCC uh, regulations here. I, I could say one thing: an hour into a podcast that football fans listen to, right?
1: Oh, I hear much worse on the sideline. That was one of the, was uh, one of the great. D three moments or D three advantages is is uh, if you if you sit by the um, by the in certain stadiums you're close enough you can hear the the defensive coach you know cussing the team out uh, when they come off the field. It, it, we, we definitely had parents who used to remark about our coach so, how he used to uh, get after us. Sometimes you can even hear them in the box when you're in the stands. Oh, that's by far worse. Actually, the, the the box I think is worse than than the coaches on the sideline. Those guys, you know, you, could, you know, they're they're like throwing clipboards and they're like, "What are you freaking doing? I told you practice this all week. I told you he was going to throw the double pass." You know, there are pencils coming out the window <laughs> in front of you. It, it, it's that you don't you don't get to see that uh, the the fans and and the listeners, but it's pretty I, hilarious. I
0: feel like you're talking about a Catholic game now.
1: <laughs> no, I mean I, I this, I've heard this across the country. No discrimination to any particular. I'm just saying when
0: you throw out the double pass thing, that makes me think of uh, some games that I might have seen.
1: Oh, I, that was a total coincidence. The only thing I will say about that is it's usually the away team coaches who are worse, I guess, because they don't have to worry about like their president being in the, in the press box as well.
0: Keith coming up this week, actually talking about the games now. Uh, let's see, uh, UW lacrosse at number nine, UW Platteville. When we talked to the, very so briefly about uh, lacrosse uh, and Oshkosh earlier, we didn't mention that Tarek Yegi, the lacrosse quarterback, uh, was also not playing on Saturday. Uh, his quarterback uh, David did pretty well. We'll see if that holds up uh, as they go down the road to Platteville. Uh, Wittenberg at Wabash. This is a game that uh, looked really good two weeks ago. Uh, Wabash folks are still probably looking forward to it to see if they can get themselves back into this North coast athletic conference race. Um, but Keith, we were talking about teams going in two different directions. Wittenberg and Wabash look like that right
1: now. Sure. But, but Wabash is a strong enough program that I think, and, and they've, this has been a, a rivalry, not, um, sort of a competitive rivalry, not a historical rivalry. Um, it's been one long enough that I think Wabash deep down wants to win this game, even if if it's pretty plain to see that Wittenberg probably has a better team this year, um, you know, any given uh, Saturday.
0: Washu is at Case Western Reserve. This once upon a time was a UAA game. UAA for football doesn't exist anymore, but... Uh, you know, Washu's record is kind of deceiving. They had a, a really tough schedule to open the season and uh, they could provide Case with
1: a test. Well, Case lost a game late last season that uh, that we didn't expect it to lose and, and avoided having to deal with the, the same problem that may come up again this year. Where uh, where you know there there's no head to head crossover game. I was kind of wondering why you put this one in the list though, Pat. And the UAA thing brought it home for me. There you go.
0: Uh, Dubuque is at Warburg. Uh, Dubuque, even in its best years, has had trouble beating Warburg. Of course, Dubuque fans, if they're still listening to this podcast 65 minutes in, will remind us that yeah, was that last year, year before, whatever they beat Warburg and they beat Warburg handily. But Warburg is the team sitting on top in the Iowa Conference right now. Um, Johns Hopkins, twenty fourth ranked. There at Muhlenberg. Often this has been a, a game for the conference title. Maybe that game's already been played this year, but uh, Muhlenberg still sits there as a tough opponent, five and two. I put Rowan and at Salisbury on this list just because, Keith. I wanted to talk about where Rowan has kind of fallen off the fallen off the ledge, fallen off the map a little bit here.
1: Oh, I thought you said you wanted to talk about it. I would be happy <laughs> to talk about it as well. I. I went to high school in, in South Jersey in the 90s when Rowan was at its peak. It was dominant. Casey Keeler was a larger-than-life uh, personality as coach. Uh, they R- Rowan was great about keeping in touch with Jersey guys who went to school uh, you know, a lot of them would get recruited into the Big Ten or the ACC or you go to FCS schools like in uh, Virginia They didn't call them FCS back then. But, you know, you may go to like James Madison or Richmond or something like that. And if it didn't work out for you, wherever you went, you you knew you had an open line back to uh, back to Rowan if you were a, a good player. And so Rowan was recruiting New Jersey, recruiting probably Southeastern Pennsylvania at that time. I honestly don't know how far they they. Throughout the nets, but they would bring in their team and then they would supplement it with with guys who flamed out elsewhere, who had New Jersey roots, come back to Rowan, and it was a dominant program. It was right on the level with Mountain Union. They went to five Stag Bowls. They went to semifinals. Uh, should have gone in in 2001. That's the famous Bridgewater Clock Game. Uh, went again in 2005 and played played Mountain Union competitively. I believe it was 1907 that semifinal game. So. All those things that were in place then seem to be in place, except for Casey Keeler. Uh, The NJAC is certainly much different now. It's made up of a different group of teams. And maybe the rise of of Wesley cuts into South Jersey recruiting a little bit. Um, A few other programs have popped up, but it's not like uh, Virginia, or I'm trying to think of there any other states where there have been, you know, Pennsylvania's added a new school or two, but uh, Virginia in the 2000s added Shenandoah, Christopher Newport, and Averett, and that really impacted recruiting in that state, and it forced teams to either broaden their recruiting appeal or start going further north or go deeper into North Carolina, but in New Jersey. In theory, Rowan should be able to recruit the same type of kids, um, but they just don't have the, the dynamic coach or the dynamic pipeline. And I think the thing, the way it really manifests itself, because they're still a competitive program, but you just you you really see the offense struggling. I think the past couple of seasons where they would a, a, always have good defense, but then have some some dominant offensive players, and really um, except for they had one pretty good running back um, recently, I, yeah, I just haven't seen the uh, the offense excel.
0: They've scored uh, 69 points combined against Southern Virginia and William Patterson. Those teams are combined 1-13 against everybody else on their schedule. They scored a grand total of 33 points in five games, and the offense is really, I don't know where the wheels came off. The wheels might not have been on that offense at that point. Um, Milliken at Carthage is a game that, uh, again, at the beginning of the season, we wouldn't have necessarily highlighted. Now it's interesting in terms of the CCIW race. Widener at Stevenson. Uh, Stevenson kind of bouncing back a little bit, and Widener needing to win to kind of stay on track to make that game against Delaware Valley in Week 11 for the conference championship. Uh, St. Scholastica is at Eureka. This is a game that has um, UMAC conference championship. Implications. Saint Norbert is at McAllister in a a Midwest Conference North game, and we talked about the Monmouth Lake Forest game in the Midwest Conference South. I do like that the championship game is back in that 12-team conference this year.
1: Yeah, and and I guess disappointing, for lack of a better word, the thing about it right now is um, looks like the best two teams in that conference, or at least the most, the two most successful teams so far, are are on the same side of that thing. So whoever wins uh, Monmouth at Lake Forest this week. Probably plays the, the St. Norbert-McAllister winner in uh, in the title game and probably goes in as the favorite.
0: Probably plays St. Norbert, I would guess. McAllister lost two crossover games earlier, and uh, St. Norbert's games are out of conference. Um, their losses, that is. Carnegie Mellon at Westminster, Pennsylvania, a, another game that will help uh, kind of round out the pack a little bit and then to round out the night. Cal Lutheran at Chapman, a game that uh, would be pretty interesting and that maybe we won't be voting until it's done.
1: Well, we also have not paid a whole lot of attention to the the Skyac this year because um, their conference teams didn't come out of the gate very strong. They all, they usually start a week later anyway, and then you have an early loss at Linfield. You have Redlands losing early in the season, and and suddenly you know it's taken a while for uh, for the Skyac teams to to get um, get going. And it looks like Chapman is the one that that really is is uh, playing well lately, but I, it's important. For those who are concerned with the playoff field to watch that to watch that game and see who comes out of uh, of um, California, because that team gets sent somewhere to Texas or to somewhere in the northwest and uh, always ends up in a pretty interesting first round matchup.
0: Chapman four and two overall 4 and0 oh in the conference, Cal Lutheran five and one and three and one. and that was around the nation podcast number 181 for the week of October 23rd, 2017. Thanks for listening and keep an eye on the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like this podcast, thank you. Thank you. We like you, too. But please consider rating it in Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or, you know, Podcasts RS, wherever you get your podcasts, because that will help other Division Three football fans find it. The executive producer of Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music and uh, all of these other little music things by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at djmentos.com, D-J-M-E-N-T-O-S. Thanks to our guests, Chaiten Tomlin, and uh, sports information director Blake Watson for their assistance on this edition of our show. Also, thanks to Ryan Carlson of CatDomeAlumni.com. And of course, thanks to the creator of the Around the Nation podcast at D3Football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. You can reach us to talk more. You know, Keith, I just rattle that off by rote every week, and I am I am more grateful than my tone of voice sounds. Now I'm just in credits mode. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports, so join the conversation by registering to post with a valid email address at d3boards.com, and you can follow d3football.com on Facebook. We have all sorts of new content at d3football.com each week during the season, so keep an eye out for the d3football.com play of the week on Mondays, around the region columns on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, Adam Turr around the nation column on Thursdays, our weekly quick hits predictions on Friday, and wall-to-wall game coverage on Saturdays, then snap judgments from Adam Turr on Sunday, and the thing everybody likes to complain about on Sunday. That's the top 25.
1: So going to wake up for work on Monday?
0: That's, that's one of my least favorite things to do, especially because I'm going to be editing this podcast in, uh, until about 3 in the morning, especially because I already basically had my idea for the front page graphic done, and now I think I have to go out and find some red yarn to strew all across it, because that was kind of the thread running through the whole podcast.
1: Can you steal an HBO Sopranos picture?
0: That's what, that's I can't a- steal anything. I can just kind of deconstruct things and make them look different. Oh, fair use